Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Wizard and the Bruiser, and it is I, your precious idol wizard, Holden McNeely. I'm perfect and beautiful and oh so pure. And I'm your entirety of Japanese society, Jake. Ooh, I'm oppressive. Ooh, I'll fuck you up real good. Ooh, you think it's all glitzy and shiny, but beneath the surface, it's pitch black ooze ready to just rip your friggin' soul out. Ohio gozaimasu, motherfuckers. It's me, Japanese <laughs> all right, all society. Right. All right. And we are here to talk about the classic anime film, Perfect Blue. Oh, you know what? I'll give the synopsis right up top. How about it? Because Ooh, I think dangerous. maybe for this one, a lot of people who's listening potentially may not have actually heard of this. So let me just throw it out there. Perfect Blue is a Japanese animated psychological thriller film released in 1997 about a woman named Mima Kirigoi who decides to leave her career as part of a Japanese idol group to pursue acting. As this happens, she becomes pursued by a stalker while gruesome murders turn up all around her and she loses her grip on reality. It was written by Sadayuki Murai and directed by absolute auteur Satoshi Kone. He also did Paprika, among many other things. He's a legend in the anime world. Also, real quick, uh, just a warning ahead of time. There, uh, This film does feature a couple of scenes involving sexual assault, so that will be on the table. We're not going to get into detail or anything or really just... Uh, really linger on it too, too much, but it is definitely a part of the content of today's show. So going over this movie, uh, I tr- it really just solidified something that I'd always kind of never really ha- said out loud, but Satoshi Kon, the, this was his uh, directorial debut. He is my favorite filmmaker ever. Not like really? anime producer, not like, you know, foreign director, His movies genuinely resonate with me in a way that makes me believe in the power of animation, believe in the power of fiction. It's the like describing this movie like it's just another anime would do it a disservice. This is an incredible film. Agreed. And the way that uh, Satoshi Kon uses animation, uh, it's especially it's way different than kind of standard anime fare. He is not a shonen anime creator. He is not a like crazy sci-fi, you know, robot porn director. This is, these are films meant to be films and he uses animation to tell stories with a level of like control in the pacing, imagery and performances that just normal traditional live action film can't. And I think part of that is the fact that he started as a manga creator so many times on this show, we've talked about how uh, some of the our favorite movies of all time are because the director went ahead and did extensive storyboards. That a movie where you kind of know exactly what shots and what you want to convey from scene to scene will always deliver a more satisfying product than, you know, A shot, B shot, wide shot, camera one, camera two, B-roll, pickup, whatever. And... Perfect Blue really, really delivers on the intensity, on the emotions of the character and the uh, kind of the gimmick of the movie where fiction, reality, dream, illusion all kind of falls apart through the perspective of this young uh, singer actress who is losing a grip on reality because of the strains put on her through both the entertainment industry and the actual trauma of being stalked by a, a spooky man with a gross face. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I also think a big shining light for this film is its editing. And that is especially because, which we'll get into more detail, the blurring of reality. It's that type of film where as it goes, it starts off very traditional. It starts off very grounded. And as the film goes, you just you start to lose track of what is actually happening. What is a dream? What is someone's hallucination? All of those things blend together and largely due to the way that film is edited to completely throw you off of any kind of trail of uh, linear reality. And that is one of its definite biggest strengths. Another huge strength, I think, for this film, and all of these things I want to get more into as we go, as we get through the history of this, but just for the gush portion, I love their, his, his attention towards idol culture and towards the projection of the human uh, into the world via media, which has never been more true than than now with social media and all of that sort of thing, versus the real human being and the sense of identity and the sense of being multiple people in multiple different ways. I connected deeply to that as, of course, I have a Twitch stream. I have an Instagram account with a decent amount of followers. We have this podcast. I, I also, there's, you know, people talk about it all the time. There's the me uh, on Roundtable of Gentlemen, and there's the me on Wizard and the Bruiser, and there's the me on my Twitch stream, and these are different versions, I feel, of one human being that is myself, and none of them are untrue per se. They're just all different extensions of this like core human, and I just think that he perfectly dissects that in this film. Man, this movie rules, Jake. It really, <laughs> I really does. Like it? It's really good visually. Uh, everything about it's again, like I said. Like, we're going to talk about this like it's just another anime episode because we're going to mispronounce a lot of Japanese names. Yes, I'm going to mispronounce everything always. But it truly is an amazing film. It is a tense, entertaining, and really tight. It's The movie itself is about 80 minutes long. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we'll get into why that happened. But with, with by the way, with a satisfying ending, I feel as well oh, as much incredible. because a lot of times when movies are like, is this real? Is this fake? Is this X, Y, Z? And then by the end of the movie, you're like, well, I don't even know what to think. You can just say Inception, Holden. You don't have to <laughs> pussyfoot around. Oh, right? the top. It cut away before the top. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. A lot of times the ending can leave you a little because they want to leave you not knowing exactly what, what happened. But I feel like that's not the case here per se. There's definitely different interpretations of the very end scene and what is actually going on there. But for the most part, there's a satisfying climax to this film and a big fun reveal. But either way... Reading a bunch of the interviews with the director, Satoshi Kon, uh, who I've always loved reading his interviews. Um, I actually got to see him live uh, during the Japanese Cherry Blossom Festival in Washington, D.C. when I was living there. And, you know, uh, he was just... um, You know, he premiered Paprika in America... The entire packed audience was like on their feet cheering for him. And then during the Q&A session, he like would get mad if someone asked him a dumb question. And the (laughs) poor like middle aged like woman who had to translate for him had to like just reply to these bright eyed otaku being like, why would you ask that? That's you saw the movie. You clearly know that's not what I intended. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. That's so fantastic. But uh, even with in these interviews from the 90s, you know, people are like, "Ooh, it's so confusing. Ooh, reality like like kept me guessing. And Satoshi Kon would just be like, no, we left clues. We did a really good job. Like mm-hmm. it's, we've everything's there for a reason. And he speaks of how he knows exactly what what is tr- real and what is not in the film and what is, you know. He doesn't feel that it is such a guessing game, uh, at least for himself internally. So that is that is the case as well. And you feel that you feel that competence in this in the material that that this isn't just swinging for the fences kind of rando bullshit. Like this is actually a very well thought out conceived storyline. But uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about Satoshi Kon. Let's get into it. Let's talk about Cone Dog. That's what I call him. A big stinky Cone Dog. I don't know if he was stinky. How dare you? I made you? that up. How dare you? I'm, I'm sure he's very clean. The man smelled amazing. <laughs> but either way, while in high school, Cone decided he wanted to become an animator. I don't have a lot about his early childhood because, you know, Japanese uh, anime manga artists 
It's how it goes. Uh, he was also friends and classmates with manga artist Seiho Takizawa, so maybe there was some mutual influence happening right there. He was definitely inspired by shows like Space Battleship Yam Yamato, a sci-fi anime series that marked a turn towards more complex, serious works for the art form and led to another big influence him for him, which is Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, and then, of course, there is Akira. Akira! Creator Katsuhiro Otomo and his work Domu, A Child's Dream. I believe we've talked about it before, but I forget what episode. Probably the it was Agira, the Akira. Episode. It was probably the Akira episode. Uh, this is about a rash of deaths in a dilapidated apartment complex and a child and an old man who have extrasensory powers. Um, it, he super loved that work, and I feel like that bleeds a little bit into Perfect Blue. So, Cone graduated from the graphic design course at the Musashino Art University in 1982, year I was born. And while there, he watches a ton of foreign films. And that is no surprise to this guy. Because I think the Italian-French cinematic influences on, especially Perfect Blue, there's, there's a lot of that kind of like um, Fellini vibe going on, uh, Bergman vibe going on. I'm not sure exactly what films he saw, but I just really think he probably watched a decent amount of Bergman and Fellini movies well, while he was in, in school. In interviews, uh, he points to uh, two movies that are very relevant to uh, Wizard and the Bruiser. Uh, one is uh, George Roy Hill's uh, live action adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five, mm -hmm. which we covered in our Kurt Vonnegut episode, um, especially the way that he... In Slaughterhouse House Five, which, as we talked about, uh, jumps between different timelines and different uh, eras in Billy Pilgrim's life with no real connective tissue. Uh, all of that work is kind of done in shot framing, and it's kind of an achievement f in that movie on how you can maintain that like congruity despite uh, chopping up the timeline. I was going to say, I have a quote about this, uh, and specifically with Slaughterhouse-Five. Cohn said, The human brain is mysterious. We can't share the time axis in our memory with others. For example, when we remember an Im impressive event that happened 20 years ago, the memory may follow something that happened yesterday. I think everyone has that experience. That is exactly the the flow and vibe of Slaughterhouse Five, there's just it's like one memory bleeds into the next, and it's all happening at the same time, as if it's all parallel times. Um, in Perfect Blue, there's so many cuts that happen where you're very unsure about the passage of time, or like what is happening on in the world of the fiction, what is happening as part of the TV show our main character is acting in, what is happening in her real life, what is happening on her stage life as an idol. So it definitely like fits that. Um, another big influence that he mentions is Terry Gilliam mm -hmm. uh, with movies like Time Bandits, Brazil and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, especially Brazil. I feel like I got which is another movie I absolutely adore. Absolutely. Because the way uh, the dream life of our protagonist kind of invades and then like entwines with the reality to the point where the audience is kind of off kilter, always trying to like get a get their footing about like the reality of the events unfolding in front of them i will say jake we got what what is up with our lack of monty python love on this show i feel like we need to change that yesterday i mean so we'll definitely do something about that i i mean i've been watching annie donna on netflix and as a storied sketch performer yourself holden like if anyone should be doing a history it oh, should be, yeah. Absolutely. And, of course, Terry Gilliam and his films as well. I'd love to do a Brazil episode. Terry Gilliam, of course, also an animator, also a visual yes. artist, also yes. very strict control over the shot-to-shot -shot composition of his movies. Cohn said, they're all excellent films which mix dream and reality. The brilliant thing about Gilliam's work is his bitter criticism of inert and stagnant societies such as our own, as well as his childlike imagination and creativity, which, again, I feel like is a you could use as a descriptor for the Perfect Blue film and Paprika, honestly. Oh, my God. Satoshi Kon is very much a cynic. Like, he's an idea. It's very much uh, about the power of love when all is said and done, but he is very cynical about a lot of aspects of modern Japanese society. His childhood, he spent a lot of time in uh, Hokkaido in the city of Sapporo, which is kind of this northern kind of wintry island that's way, way, way far away from Tokyo. And it has kind of a more down-home kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, folksy reputation within Japan. Um, so the idea that, you know, he entered show business, entered the 
animation industry and like spent a lot of time in Tokyo, his like observations as an outsider can be felt either in just the kind of low frequency hum of scumminess in all the scenes dealing with the show business industry in Perfect Blue to the fact that like in uh, a series like Paranoia Agent, uh, you know, at one point, just the collective fears and anxieties of Tokyo's population manifests into like a dark black ooze that consumes the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, again, pure nerd bait, like kind of like Vonnegut. He is an outsider. He has like uh, kind of this understanding of the difference between fiction and reality and the stories we tell ourselves. He is very much in this kind of Douglas Adams zone we've been talking about for like ideal yeah. nerd creator. We, I feel like that's been the theme of 2020 subjects almost for us. We did Vonnegut, Douglas Adams. This is, is because all... nerds are outsiders. <laughs> nerds are like awkward weirdos that don't get invited to the cool people. You're parties. scaring me, Jake. Jake, please stop being so riled up. No, I don't know. It's because we've been because, again, I care a lot about Satoshi Kon. And uh, it definitely, and the fact that even he points to Terry Gilliam and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five as influences, it all just comes full circle that, like, the geek experience is definitely standing apart, being like, man, all these people are a bunch of phonies and assholes, and I wish they would invite me to their cool parties. Well, let's hop into a machine that is not the Way Way Back machine and travel back to 1984. Uh, There he is still attending college. He puts out his first manga, a short called Toriko, which was named runner-up for Young Magazine's Tetsuya Chiba Award, which gets him a little bit of notoriety Not the Tezuka Award. This this slacker. This failure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like the bullshit award. He then got work under manga artist Katsuhiro Otomo himself and graduates college in 1987. He releases a one-volume manga after that called Kaikasen in uh, 1990, while still while also writing the story for Katsuhiro Otomo's live-action film World Apartment Horror, which is a lot of fun. You should definitely look this up. So yeah, and by the way, Otomo of uh, Akira fame, like he <laughs> gets to work under him. Otomo is his mentor. It's a huge deal. He gets to start in the business this way. And World Apartment Horror sounds like a lot of fun. It's a horror comedy centered around a Yakuza henchman who attempts to evict a Tokyo apartment full of foreigners and encounters language barriers and evil spirits. And so I definitely want to check it out for sure. Cone actually illustrated a uh, manga adaptation of the movie that I read for this week's episode, and it is. Uh, really well done. Um, the Otomo influence kind of uh, fits the idea of just all this like really well detailed living spaces and a sense of place being ripped apart by supernatural forces very much feels like an Otomo joint. And it kind of highlights uh, Cone's uh, strengths as a storyteller, which is like uh, very believable human characters being pushed and cornered to the extreme and their unique reactions to those situations. I don't, obviously I found random scans of it on shady websites. I suggest you hunt down a copy and pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it definitely sounds very fascinating. After that, Cohn worked as an animator and background designer for the film Rojan Z, which is a sci-fi action comedy thriller about a sentient Hospital bed, Jake. A sentient hospital bed, which sounds very interesting. He goes on to work on various animated films at this time, including work for Katsuhiro Otomo's Memories adaptations, an anthology film series based on Otomo's manga short stories. Specifically, the first one, Magnetic Rose, which involves hallucinations of a deceased opera singer aboard a spaceship. People point to Magnetic Rose as the breakout short of that movie, and if you are ever just want to, like, just fill your eyes with like animated splendor and high concept sci-fi woogity boogity light up the fattest spliff you can get a hands up. <laughs> and I think it's on Amazon prime. You can just watch uh, memories right now. Code said it was also a story of confusion between memory and the real world because I didn't direct it myself. I was a bit concerned about how it was turning out on many occasions. I thought I would have done things differently. I got my chance to re- realize those thoughts with, Perfect Blue. This is absolutely the blueprint for Perfect Blue. Everybody should definitely check it out. The art is fantastic. Very, very cool situation. And of course, you know, if you want more Acura vibe, you know, Otomo's got more stuff out there. So uh, it's, it's a weird little story here with the development of this film. Because originally it was supposed to be a live action movie. 
The source material was a novel by Yoshikazu Takeuchi, which was released in 1991, titled Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis, which focuses more on Mima's psychotic fandom rather than her mental breakdown and questioning of her own reality. Jake, you skimmed through it. What? What do you what do you, what's the vibe? What are we talking here? So the no, the novel is very short. It's definitely in the style of a Japanese kind of light novel. It was meant for like a quick pick up and read. Uh you can get it on for Kindle for like 10 bucks and uh there's tons of things that are different uh from the original from the movie. Uh but mostly it boils down to the dual narratives of Mima as this idol who uh in in this story, she doesn't become an actress. She just, like, is doing a more sexy gimmick for her upcoming single and um, is, like, dealing with kind of the day-to-day politics of the Japanese idol music complex where she's concerned about, um, you know, upcoming, you know, young up-and-comers that are, like, kind of uh, competing with her, dealing with management and... The counter narrative, I don't know, the deuteragonist is uh, this obsessive fan that we get into how his kind of uh, obsession with uh, Mima and her childlike innocence at her debut imprinted on him and how he begins to claim ownership of her and how those emotions and his stalking of her grows in darkness and grows more intense to the point where I'm just going to spoil it for you. Uh, because it has so li- uh, the big twist in the movie does not happen. There, it is just the killer fan. And at one point, uh, at the end of the novel, uh, he has cornered her. He has kidnapped one of her friends and drawn her out to an abandoned television station. And uh, once there, he rips off his own face and like waves a knife around and hunts her through the television station, trying to steal her face and become her. <laughs> Uh, there's just lavish descriptions of his bulging, blood-covered eyeballs and gnashing, gummy, lipless teeth. It is crazy, but it is definitely more of just like a slasher thriller in the unconventional setting of an idol and their fans. Did she try um, to switch to acting, or is that none of that in there? none of that in there. Okay, so, yeah, it definitely sounds more like... It it sounds so super different, because you also even have in Perfect Blue, the film... You've got uh, her being pretty cool with the fact that Cham ends up that her her idol group ends up being quite successful after she leaves. She, you know what I mean? Like she doesn't worry about like the new up and comers at all. You know what I mean? She doesn't want to be a part of the idol thing anymore, right? No. Um. So in the book, there afterwards one written in uh, 1991 after the book was published, and another one written in 1998. After the movie was released, um, basically, he relates that uh, Takeuchi talks about how he himself was an idol fan. Mm. And uh, as he got deeper and deeper into that fandom, he kind of got drawn into otaku circles and he kind of felt out of place. He saw like the true depths of how far those obsessions can go over stuff like uh, horror movies, Godzilla movies, uh, children's programs and music idols. And the the kind of chasm between his just like, man, I think these singing ladies are pretty neat <laughs> versus like the micro just universe that people build out of these creative things. Um, yeah. He, you know what? He, this is the quote. I started to wonder what unimaginable catastrophe would come about if their passions became as sharply pointed as the T-1000's blade arm in Terminator 2 aimed at the subjects of their obsession. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
So actually, this is a good time to do it. Before we get back to why this film ended up not being a live-action film and ended up being animation instead, I want to give a brief history of Japanese pop idol culture. It was the actually the French film, I'm going to fuck this up, but whatever, Cherchez les Dolls, which was released in Japan in 1964, and audience, audiences really dug Sylvie Vartan and her song, Les Plus Belles Pour Aller Danser, which sold more than one million copies in Japan, because audiences were taken by her youthful, adorable looks and musical talent. The Japanese entertainment industry assigned the word idol to those that had comparable aesthetics. By the 70s, with the help of television, idols became a phenomenon with many young ladies getting recruited through audition programs. So they set, setting up these early structures, these early systems that they had to work through in order to become the most famous idols. Their private lives were closely guarded secrets to make them appear perfect and to look like they enjoyed lavish lifestyles of folks' wildest dreams. However, their real lives were under constant surveillance by their promoters, and actually they weren't really paid all that well as back in the 70s. The 80s were known as the, quote, golden age of idols and cemented it as a visual medium via television with as many as 40 to 50 new idols appearing in a single year, which sounds like a lot to me. They also started to allow idols to show their own personalities a little bit through this through this time, as well as planned beefs with other idols. Stop me if you've heard that one before. I mean, I feel like we had to have that with rappers and stuff like they pre-plan their beefs with each other to get publicity and stuff. When it's a Japanese cultural product, this is known as J-Fabe. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is all bi- scripted for the most part. In the 90s, public interest in idols began to wane. Therefore, many sought to be defined as an artist instead of an idol. And I think that's why we get this in 1997 with Perfect Blue. Because now I think Japanese idols... K-pop obviously has it going on as well. I think it had a big resurgence in popularity since the 90s, but... I did a little tooling around, and this is the story Perfect Blue, which Satoshi Kon actually says he was a little confused about the title. Reading the book, it's a little more clear because the color blue in Japanese culture represents, like, female tranquility. So Mm. the idea of an idol as this perfect blue like representation of like ideal femininity and the way that a presentation of ideal femininity in the hands of a very disturbed and lonely person can mutate and become something less than perfect. Yeah. Uh, In 1991, the idol kind of craze was dying down. It had reached its heights in the seventies and eighties and the movie perfect blue kind of um, showcases that with the early uh, performances of Cham being kind of like, shitty and chaotic and her management being like oh we got to get you out of the idol game and make you like something more desirable like a actress or something that being said in 1997 when perfect blue the movie was released that was also the debut of morning musume which was this breakout nova explosion that kind of reinvigorated j-pop and the entire idol thing and kind of then uh there was cross-pollination with uh, K-pop and like basically the perfect blue narrative uh, between 1991 and 1997 was a lull in the genre. And then it just came roaring back. Yeah. So it kind of speaks to a very specific time and place in Japanese culture. Well, speaking of a very specific time and place, and I'll get more into this later. But another thing I want to mention is just the very fact that the Internet was introduced into the world, which totally br- was a huge part of the reinvigoration of Japanese idols. And we actually address that. And this is why Perfect Blue ends up being this weird period piece, because a big part of the plot is her learning how to use the Internet so that she can find out about this website where this stalker guy has created his own persona of her. And he's like acting as her online. And she's following that and again speaks back towards our projected reality versus our true reality and even other people taking on your reality and being you, being an imposter you. And uh, I just think that was such a fascinating part of it. Anyway, what is it about like internet being introduced in the world as a thing in movies and stuff is just so much fun to, to watch. Like everybody lights up when someone's like discovering the internet in like a early, you know, in like a nineties movie. It's a, ama- I mean, when they unpack the, Macintosh Performa 2 <laughs> and it's like in the box <laughs> yeah just like the, seeing the photos of people grabbing like Windows 95 on day one is, is always like so much fun either way going back to the whole live action thing it was actually an earthquake 
that caused this to be an animated film, which I think is so crazy. The Kobe earthquake, to be exact. This was also referred to as the Great Hanshin earthquake, and it happened in January of 1995 and measured 6.9 on the magnitude scale and was Japan's worst earthquake in the 20th century. This quake damages the production studio that was intended to make the live-action film. And it did it so, so badly, they were like, fuck it, we have to reduce the budget for the movie, and it's going to be animated instead so that we can get this thing done. So this is where Kone steps in. Kone and screenplay writer Sadayuki Morai, um, they did not feel the novel would be a good film. And they asked if they could change the shit out of it, which was approved. They- Supposedly, he didn't even read it. He just read yes. a synopsis. He read. He actually read. If if not, I've also read it as uh, a screenplay that the original writer wrote. Mm, um, but okay. it might have been a synopsis. Either way, I'm pretty sure it was done by the original novelist. Who who and he read that and was like, I don't like this at all. Um, Cohn said the film focuses on the process by which the victim's psyche is destroyed, rather than how insane the suspect is. Uh, and yeah, he he. He uh, described it was described to him this synopsis or screenplay as, quote, close to the original story. Cohn said they wanted to keep three elements of the story, idol, horror and stalker. Aside from that, I could make any changes I wanted. So we changed many things, even the plot. (laughs) Uh, The title itself, uh, you already kind of mentioned this. The title itself has no real relevance besides it being the title of the source material, and that, quote, Cohn said this, I like it, it sounds significant and mysterious, which I do think is funny that it is sort of arbitrary, even though you gave some meaning to it, which is nice. Cohn actually just did not know any screenwriters, so he asked the producer to find him someone who would be down to take on his ideas and run with him. The producer matched Cohn with Sadayuki Morai, who before being a screenwriter worked in a publicity company that handled a lot of idol events, and even knew some idols, and so just felt very competent in, in writing inside of this world. A fascinating world to me. By the way, uh, if you want to see a great documentary about Japanese idols, check out Tokyo Idols, I believe it's called. It is on Netflix, I'm pretty sure, and it was one of those random movies I threw on one night and was just completely just to- 100% like into it. I-, I just, it's so fascinating, especially because like, we all know the black pinks of the world, you know what I mean? We all know like the ones that are massive household name, huge hit maker idols. Tokyo Idols follows those like middling idols that has maybe a collection of like 20 weird old dudes following around them around to every single show they do. And they never quite make it, you know what I mean? And and watching that struggle, working within this system to set yourself apart against hundreds of other idols in the making. It's fascinating stuff. Um, Loved it. One, th- I, We're going to get lost in the weeds with Sadayuki Murai uh, after this. So I just want to point out that um, he uh, has done a lot of writing for anime after this. Uh, he worked on stuff like uh, that Rain the Conqueror show, Boogie Pop Phantom and Knights of Sidonia, as well as uh, some of Satoshi Kon's later movies, such as Millennium Actress and even uh, Steam Boy, which was with uh, Otomo. But... The thing that I want to really uh, point out is uh, he was also a writer on Cowboy Bebop and the episodes that where he is listed as writer is Boogie Woogie Feng Shui, Gateway Shuffle, and literally my favorite episode of the entire run, Perot LeFou with the Ooh, creepy penguin guy. He did that one? That's everybody's favorite. He did favorite. that one. That's the best that one. That is <laughs> such a good one. <laughs> That's the best one. I love that episode, man. Mm. Yeah. So they sh- so uh, Sayuki Murai... Uh, besides writing Perfect Blue with Satoshi Kon, did my favorite episode of Cowboy Bebop, once again reinforcing this energy field of way too inappropriate intensity about how much I love this movie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think one one of the major themes is the clash between projected reality and personal reality, as we mentioned. Uh, and Kohn had this to say about that. I think it is a problem everybody has, male or female, famous or anonymous. I mean... There's a gap between the image people see of me and what I see myself. Perfect Blue is about the tragedy caused by that gap becoming too large. As the movie goes on, it becomes increasingly, as we mentioned before, difficult to tell what's really happening, what's hallucination, and even whose perspective it's from. Because at the end, there's a bit of a reveal with a certain character, and uh, I don't want to necessarily spoil it if you haven't seen it, uh, but um, then, then you could even make an argument for, oh, this is all happening from that person's reality, not even from, or that person's perspective, not even from Mima's. Cohn said, 
It's the difficulty of figuring it out that is at the core of the film. So long as you accept that it's meant to be inexplicable, that's fine. There's a natural explanation for me as creator since I distinguished between subjective and objective while making the storyboards. However, some scenes lead from sequences of reality to illusion. So I guess it is hard for the audience to tell which is which. However, as I said, it is not the object of the film to distinguish them. And I think that is an important thing. You can watch it over and over again and take away different things in terms of what is real, what is not. But at the end of the day, um, you don't have to. So there's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, kind of practicality meets creativity here where um, the once the project was, you know, Kobe earthquaked into an animation and they brought on Satoshi Kon, the original idea was it for for it to be an OVA, one of those direct-to-video animes where each episode is kind of released on any, on its own DVD or in this era VHS. They're allowed to have uh, higher uh, per-episode budgets. They're allowed to have shorter episode runs and they're allowed to kind of tack on uh, way more intense subject matters than a regular TV or movie anime. But at one point during production, it was decided that it would just be a standalone film. So according to um, an interview with Satoshi Kon, this is the quote, the project originally started out as a video, but it ended up as a big screen spectacular. So there were many cuts that we had to make. In the end, I think I had to throw out about 100 scenes. The cuts were made because the cinema running time was limited. So nearly all the missing footage was there that just showed the passage of time. We cut several scenes escalating suspense that were originally there to emphasize Mima's gradually growing fear. It was difficult to bring out the feeling of gradually when you don't have the time to do it. So that led us to become bolder and cut most of the scenes in which stuff crept up on you gradually. So the fact that the movie is so discordant and the fact that you are jumping from thing to thing and you're kind of, you don't quite know where Mima is and where we are chronologically or like what's changed or what reality we're in is a byproduct of having to cut all of those scenes that would have helped the viewer along kind of establish how far along we are. There's also a really cool blurring that happens that's not just hallucination versus reality. There's also the weird blurring that happens because of her job as an actress in this psychological thriller TV show and mixed with her outside of scene work where she's really, she's also kind of in a psychological thriller in a sense with this stalker and all this stuff going on. And they do a really interesting job of mixing those two things where you see her talking with someone, having a conversation that sounds like they're talking about what's going on in her real life, but actually they're in a scene in a TV show. And I thought that was a really fascinating. The in-universe TV show that she works for called Double Bind just happens to have the exact same plot of the movie we're currently watching. That's leading <laughs> to some hilarious mix-em-ups. Uh, Sadayuki Murai in an interview that I had to find on the Wayback Machine, not the Way Way Back Machine, Please. talks about how uh, the show within the movie was a parody of Japanese dramas at the time. Uh, it was all influenced by Silence of the Lambs. So the idea of this like just psycho crazy slasher just menacing people was all over the place on Japanese TV at the time. It's a lot of sex, a lot of violence. Another really cool element is that she starts seeing herself in idol form in mirrors and windows and she, and her idol talks to her idol self talks to her and fucks with her and everything and she's constantly going after it later in the film when the true when the uh, uh certain person is revealed culprit. To be, let's let's go persona style let's just call him culprit the idol chases her around in this awesome street chase and in the windows and in the mirrors the reflection of the true culprit is is reflected back and again it's just done so seamlessly and so effectively and really just gives adds to that blurring of reality going back to uh internet stuff i I did want to talk about that just a little bit so the stalker that's going after that guy with the guy with the weird eye we'll just say what were we calling him we were calling him um what's his name from goonies sloth sloth (laughs) yeah we were calling him sloth from the goonies it kind of has that look and um he he is created this Mimania uh, character on the internet that I mentioned before that that, that uh, Mima learns how to use the internet in order to track. Cohn himself actually was an early adopter of the internet, and this actually goes back to the projected reality versus the person personal reality theme. Cohn said. 
Having my own homepage was simply one other method of expression. If you're working with text, then having your own homepage is an ideal vehicle. Also, it would be a nice writing exercise, so I decided to start my own website. But it's not intended to explain me or my personality to other people, and I didn't expect that so many people would read it. I had many reactions from these people, which surprises me a great deal. It makes me happy if people are interested in my work, but not when they're interested in me. So when I received all these reactions, I didn't know how to keep my distance from them. And again, I think that is absolutely a theme explored in this film. Uh, He actually bought a computer for the first time in order to learn about the internet to make the film. The internet fan page element was not in the source material either. Of course, Cohn said, for the film's plot, it was necessary to have a place where a more authentic version of Mima could appear. By that, I mean a version of Mima that was closer to the public image than the real Mima would ever be. Also, it had to be something made by another character, not Mima herself. So I thought about the options and decided on using a website. One of the recurring, the almost the entirety of the movie takes place indoors. Um, and one of the key sets in the movies is Mima's room, uh, both the homepage and her apartment. And uh, it there's like a huge, uh, so many good twists. But within the room, there are three prominent things. There is a television, her new PC, and a fish tank with some neon Tetras in it, all of which share the same three by four standard definition screen size. Uh, and her studio, her cramped studio apartment is also kind of in the same square format. And this idea that like, even in her real life, she's still confined and can only be reflected through other three by four squares is just another like little detail that like was deliberately put in by Cone to kind of add to the themes and the visuals of the movie, reinforcing the plot themes in it. It's just so well considered. Um, if you, you can find, uh, through much, much internet digging, the, uh, scans of the original storyboards made by Satoshi Kon and the whole movie is there. It's actually kind of incredible to just scroll through the entire movie roughed out in pencil with like little Japanese notes next to it. But like nothing, again, he was a manga creator. And so this movie was laid out kind of like a comic with each scene and each shot kind of being you can kind of understand what's happening visually even without the dialogue it's it's an accomplishment it's just really well done and then we haven't even talked about first of all the violence is fantastically done to a degree that i'm very used to violence in films and there's a couple of scenes in there uh specifically the one with the photographer that is like wow man like real real intense real well done the ending as well that whole sequence in terms of just fitting the genre the suspense the 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 those t- those elements with tension it, it is it is absolutely fantastically done done and very very just riveting then there's also the sexual assault that should definitely be mentioned i mean there's two two scenes with sexual assault and then one it, i think is a more fascinating scene and that is the one where she's not actually in reality being sexually assaulted it is a scene in a film that she decides to do which is a big turning point for her deciding to she's trying to be taken seriously as an actress so she says yes to doing this scene which definitely ramps up the folks that are upset with her turning her back on her idol form because she's turning her back on her innocence in a lot of ways and it's a very very upsetting scene but it's also um very well done i think with the way especially i love how the actor who is is supposed to be uh, who who's who's the guy doing the thing uh he in a moment they call cut and there's like silence and he's hovering over her and he just like whispers in her ear an apology. And she's like, no, it's okay. And, it, and like, I thought that was such a authentic, fascinating scene. And, and I think a lot of times when it comes to sexual assault and especially in anime, it's done, I, w- I guess I'll just say poorly or it's done in an overly sexualized way, which is like really gross. It makes me feel icky. But this I think was done pretty maturely. Because it's not filmed for it's or film, but it's, it's so many times in anime, you'll have a character get their clothes ripped off and the camera will zoom in on the bouncy big anime titties and the guy will be like, yeah, like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely done for the male gaze. And in mm-hmm. this in this movie, you know, we're deaf the, just from shot to shot, just the way the camera is framed. We're clearly supposed to be, uh, you know, experiencing this from Mima's perspective. And it's not OK um, and it's not, you know, it's not lascivious. It's not, in, you know, titillating. It's traumatic. And again, 
it's bucking all of these anime trends that I swear elevates this movie beyond the trappings of, of genre anime. And let's talk about animation in general, Jake, before we move on to some other things. I mean, there is also the argument, and of course, obviously so, because it was supposed to be a live-action movie originally. What, what makes this need to be animated? Do you, do you think it needs to be animated? So that is, I, I think... While we were watching this on the Sunday study group, um, go to Wizbrew, patreon.com slash Wizbrew and see uh, how you can join in on these weekly streams where we engage with uh, upcoming topics with our audience. The The fact is it didn't for them. It didn't have to be animated. This could have been live action. There's a lot of just human beings talking. There's no robots. There's no ghosts. But. For something this intimate, for something where we have to be in the main character's psyche, where we have to kind of deal with the surreality of what's happening, in animation, you can control every frame. And, you know, um, this isn't like a big spectacle like Akira or uh, a Miyazaki film. There isn't much, uh, quote unquote, Sakuga premium high frame rate animation going on. But it's still just so well directed and so well edited that it is kind of of a higher pedigree than most anime. Um, the uh, the fact that from scene to scene, from transition to transition, they can kind of just send you for a full loop definitely couldn't be done in live action or at the very least, it would have been harder to do. Um, Satoshi Kon actually talks about in an interview you know, if you're doing a dream sequence, you have to add like wavy lines on the periphery or you have to like do a zoom in of someone's eyes darting around or you have to do all of these. There's already an established language that kind of like already gives gives away to the audience what's happening. And by purposely subverting them in this movie and by the sheer fact that everything that's happening is a cartoon, you don't, you know, even in a live action movie, if they wanted to do a thing like, the hallucination Mima jumping on the light posts, which happens in the movie, you would like see that all of a sudden something's in green screen, or you would see that like wire effects were happening and the ethereal quality of seeing this figure kind of hopping weightlessly from lamppost to lamppost is given that much more like kind of like, Whoa, what's happening? Yeah. Because nothing has changed uh, from a visual fidelity standpoint from the rest of the movie. I'd also even argue that reflection moment at the end, you could totally do that in a live action scene, but there's something about the way that was animated was way stronger. In my opinion, it def it's definitely something, especially, especially back in the day. I don't think you could pull some of those techniques off just period. Well, in uh, live action, I think today it'd be more doable, but there's still something. Yes. About that weightlessness in the scene with her jumping in the light post and some of the more surreal, moments as the movie goes on later on and some of the violence too honestly i mean that scene with the photographer is gnarly bro and i think that that was also you could make a case for that really needing to be anim an animated thing but uh yeah i i uh it is an interesting one but i'm so happy that it is that being animated. said if you're darren aronofsky you can totally pull it off in live action because you stole a bunch of shit reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> so, yes, the film has been called a major influence on Darren Aronofsky's 2010 film Black Swan, though he denies this, which is ridiculous because it's clearly influenced. He does have a remake of a scene from Perfect Blue, however, in Requiem for a Dream that recreates Mima face down in a bathtub screaming underwater. You can see, like, one-to-one -one comparisons. Like, it is the exact same series of shots. And uh, they also met each other. Uh, Aronofsky and Cohen got to get up in 2001 and hang out, which I think is awesome. But clearly, come on. 
Black Swan is so influenced by Perfect Blue. I love Black Swan, by the way. Uh, for I don't know if it's still valid, but Christopher Nolan had bought the rights for a live action mm. Perfect Blue as well. So Interesting. Like, Which, I mean, if someone's going to do it, I think we mentioned Inception earlier. I think he'd be a great candidate for it. You but. know what the comparison I'd want to make is? Is uh, like a movie like Spider-Man Homecoming uh, or even what's the one, the sequel where he's in Europe? Uh, far From Home. Far From Home. You know, that is a live action movie with cutting edge special effects. And it like feels like pretty good. It's it's like a fun romp. But the movie that everyone really resonates with is Enter the Mm Spider-Verse. Because like within the world of animation, you can get every key pose right. And you can tell like these fantastical stories with so much more control. And it just like every moment hits way harder. I'm pretty sure if they had John Mulaney voicing a pig in the uh, live action Spider-Man sequels that uh, it would be just as popular as Enter the Spider-Verse. I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that claim. Okay, I will not challenge it. <laughs> Either publicly. way, uh, you did mention the male gaze earlier, and I think that's definitely an element here. Uh, Cohn had this to say about writing a female protagonist, which I thought was interesting and maybe problematic. But either way, here it is. This may seem meaningless, but it does mean something. Uh, in terms of writing a female protagonist. It's because female characters are easier to write. With a male character, I can only see the bad aspects. Because I am a man, I know very well what a male character is thinking. Even if he is supposed to be very cool, I can see this bad side of him. That makes it very difficult to create a male character. On the other hand, if you write a female protagonist because it's the opposite sex and I don't know them the way I know a male, I can project my obsession onto the characters and expand the aspects I want to describe. Which I think is interesting, which is maybe a little ridiculous, but also I think just speaks towards his needing to focus on the other versus the self throughout as a theme in this film. And that is definitely happening with her idol self and everything. But I don't know. What do you make of that quote, Jake? Uh, it's a, I mean, Hayao Miyazaki is always has his movies with female protagonists. I think if you want to, it's just easier for, especially in a society as insanely gender segregated as Japan. Just if you're having an ideal hero, if you have someone that you want to sympathize for, it's easier for especially a writer who with self-professed nerd tendencies to just, yeah, have an idea, have a female protagonist and tell a story where they're in trouble and kind of like write them as a good person. Um, as opposed to, you know, uh, especially in the original novel, you know, half the book is about this obsessive otaku and getting into deep details, why they're so obsessed with innocence, why they idolize these uh, performers so much and what they represent to their fractured psyche, where that's not what it's about. Um, you know, we don't really get that much of the stalker's perspective in Perfect Blue, the movie. It's more about uh, Mima's reality and how it's affecting her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wish I could find more on the composer because I loved the score for this movie. It's pretty minimalist, but it's so haunting and great. The score is done by Masahiro Ikumi, um, the original score, uh, the, the score reminds me actually a lot of Ghost in the Shell. I think during our Sunday study session, I was like, oh, this reminds me of Akira, but in terms of score. But actually, I, more, the more I think about it, Ghost in the Shell, I feel like, is more the tone. It's just got this chanty, ominous vibe to it that just totally adds to the the that suspense thriller tone of the whole thing. Uh, his only other credit, weirdly enough, is for the anime TV series called um, Special Powered Armor Troop Dorvac. He's like, I don't understand this guy. I think he's maybe like a Japanese jazz musician. I saw a little bit of, I dug up a little bit of stuff like that on Spotify. I'm not really sure what this guy's pedigree is because I do think this is a phenomenal score. I also love all that idol pop music. The ending is is like dark, but kind of hopeful in a certain sense. And then like when the credits hit, bang, you just get hit with this like super cheery idol song. And I loved Mm -hmm. that. I thought that was such a good move because of all the shit you've been through for the past like 20 minutes leading up to the finale. It it really, really works quite well. Just a weird side note is uh, for Satoshi Kon's later movies, he worked uh, extensively with uh, musician Susumu Hirosawa, who, besides doing the soundtracks for Paprika and Millennium Actress and stuff, uh, did pretty much all the music for every version of Berserk 
that had ever wow. been released in anime. So awesome. that's a fun connection. Awesome. The film premiered at a film festival in Canada in 1997. It had a general release in Japan in early 1998. It did quite well on the festival circuit and won awards even while also generating a positive critical response, which was totally a shocker for Cohn. who thought he was just making this direct-to-video thing. He said, I can only say it was a surprise because in the beginning, this project was intended for the video market. As its creator, I was actually a bit hesitant about Perfect Blue getting shot shown in theaters but it was and as a result the film was invited to a number of film festivals and seen by many different audiences i also got to visit many countries so i was happy with it after all the film was much more appreciated by those audience uh, audiences than i'd imagined so i was quite perplexed at the same time but this also marks the time like when it goes to the shock this kind of marks the time of audiences outside of japan embracing anime really for the first time in a big way. Not only that, but anime as like legitimate foreign uh, cinema. Oh, we should also mention Otomo was attached to the, to the movie. Like they put his name on the movie. I forget as like a special thanks or something like that. And that helped market it to other people because Akira had already made a big splash around. The oh world. yeah. 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 That friendship definitely paid off when it came to getting uh, Satoshi Kon's work noticed outside of Japan. And it's actually yeah. a little bit of a, uh, you know, in my eyes, kind of a tragedy that Kon's movies do kind of have a larger uh, reputation outside of Japan. Everything from Perfect Blue to Millennium Actress to Paprika to Tokyo Godfathers all kind of like uh, didn't really set any like world records or, you know, break the bank. In Japan, they kind of just made back their budget and were got good critical reviews and, you know, never really uh, hit that l- same level of acclaim that movies like, you know, Your Name or uh, Spirited Away did. I'm glad you mentioned Millennium Actress. Let's chat about that for a second because it is a bit of a sister film for Perfect Blue. In 2001, Cohn directed Millennium Actress, again co-written by Sadayuki Morai. It tells the story of two documentary filmmakers investigating the life of a retired acting legend as she tells them the story of her life. The difference between reality and cinema becomes, of course, again, blurred. Cohn said, Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress are two sides of the same coin, I think. When I was making Perfect Blue, I thought it would be a positive film, but little by little it became negative, darker. That exhausted me in a way. When I started working on with the producer on Millennium Actress, based on the premise I mentioned before, I had the intention of making the two films like sisters through the depiction of the relationship between admirer and idol. So in adapting that relationship, I wanted to make Millennium Actress in completely opposite, more positive images. In this way, these two films are very important to me because they show the dark side and the light side of the same relationship. So I would definitely check that out if you were a fan of Perfect Blue. Um, About the production, uh, it should be noted that uh, Satoshi Kon's cinematic career would not be possible without uh, the longtime friendship of producer Masao Moriyama, who was a longtime... Uh, proponent and champion of Cone's works, and he has an insane like role in the history of Japanese animation. He co-founded Madhouse, which is the animation production company that uh, did uh, Perfect Blue. We have alongside... talked, definitely talked about Madhouse many times. Huge production company for anime. Uh, literally the legendary first season of One Punch Man, uh, along with a bunch of other TV series like Card Captor Sakura, uh, Vampire Hunter D. Everything he also founded uh, Mappa, which is another uh, amazing animation company that did a bunch of series that I, uh, you know, uh, including the upcoming final season of Attack on Titan, and uh, their collaboration lasted up until uh, you know uh, Satoshi's untimely death. Hmm. I uh, I have one big final quote from a Kotaku article that I thought was super interesting about the relevance of this film today. Jake, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this puppy up in a tight little bizzo? Um, one of the best retrospectives on Satoshi Kon's career that I found while doing research for this episode is a video by YouTuber Steve M called The Satoshi Kon Problem. Um, mm-hmm. In addition to being a very in-depth look at his life and works, uh, the creator was very kind to include all of his sources in the uh, comments of his uh, video. And that was a huge help for this episode. So you should definitely give it a watch. Uh, that's the Satoshi Kone Problem by Steve M. All right. Uh, I guess here we go. Uh, this is a quote I thought was phenomenal. 
and uh, strap in because it's a long one. No, but I, I do. This made me think a lot about my own life, as I mentioned before, about the different realities that we put out there that even uh, even your boomer dad puts out there. You know, it's not just linked to like influencers or like Twitch streamers or whatever. I think that everyone now is displaying a certain reality of themselves on, let's say, Facebook or Instagram. And it's all being blurred and mixed together. I think that also, you know, you if you look at just the way that uh, we, the way that our algorithms are set up so we don't see certain versions of people that are put out there. Or, or I've had this situation recently where I'm like, I really love that comedian. I hate that comedian on Twitter. Like, I love that comedian when I see them at the club and I talk to them. I love that comedian stand-up. I love XYZ. The person that they are on Twitter is like a different person. And I hate that person. And I now have those complex feelings about different people. Where I'm just, it's so bizarre. You can just say I post too many photos of birds on my Twitter. <laughs> I hate Jake you can just say Twitter. I've been- I hate Jake on Twitter. Yeah. He makes really pithy, smart comments about what's going on in the world and I'm jealous and I want to be him so I have created uh, Jake Mania and you can check <laughs> out my uh, website it's just posts post as Jake from his apartment with Marie um, there's also Marie Mania that's the one Lexi's running right now that is uh, also uh, another version of Marie and it's just very exciting stuff I have been seeing an illusion fantasy version of myself um, but it's just me in a <laughs> shirt that's been ironed <laughs> So, all that said, here's the quote. Even those of us who engage with social media experience a little sliver of what it means to be Mima. We curate our lives and present them online as perfect moments of what we want people to assume are beautiful lives. We are all Mima riding the train, looking out the window and seeing a reflection of her pop star persona. Deep down, we want to please those who look at our Instagram grids uh, Facebook page and Twitter timeline. Influencers research how to create the perfect Instagram layout, painstakingly editing images to make sure they all achieve the same lighting, hues, and contrast. Just as Mima begins to lose grip on her, of her reality, we are also lured into another place where everyone has the perfect job, relationship, pet, and life. We slip into a realm of anxiety, trying to prove ourselves to those who, on our feed. Social media culture is an exponentially larger version of the world Conan envisioned with Perfect Blue. Despite creating the film at the dawn of the modern internet, Conan tapped into the dangers of technological fantasy and the damage it does to the obsessor and the targets of their obsession. In a world dominated by social media clout and follower counts, Perfect Blue scratched the surface of a digitally saturated culture that would blur the line between online personas and reality. From K-pop fandoms to the daily ritual of posting on social media, Mima's world has become our own. We all live in Mima's room. And that is, uh, by the way, that was written by Mary Beth McAndrews. Uh, really good stuff, Mary Beth. <laughs> That's like really nails it. I thought you can watch the movie. Just rent it for three bucks on Prime. Please, just do it. Please, it. just do it. It's, it's so good. Hour twenty, man. Too. It barely even feels like it's like it might as well be an episode of Prestige Television. Like, just check it out. Um, all right. I think that's our episode on Perfect Blue. Jake, what a fucking fun one, man. Thanks thanks for letting me do this one, because this one was one I'd been wanting to do for a while. I know it's Henry's, one of Henry's favorite films of all time from LPN. Uh, it's a movie I'd actually always been meaning to sit down and watch, and this was just my excuse to get to do that twice in one week, which was fun. And uh, I just, and by the way, don't worry, a, a Paprika episode is absolutely in, in our Hell future. Hell yeah. Fucking awesome movie too. I don't want to turn my back on his other work. We'll definitely address it at some point. But uh, yeah, this was this was a great, great, great piece of media to get to cover. Um, all right, check us out. Uh, ch first of all, on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, we talked about the Sunday study sessions at the $15 layer. Also at the $5 layer, you get weekly, weekly, weekly bonus episodes. But from us, different things, different discussions, just the, the shit we've been playing and watching and reading these days, and also a walk down memory lane. We've been going year by year through the 2000s, talking about the different media that came out that year, and just 
living in nostalgia land. It's been super fun. Uh, once again, that's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Holy shit, our Among Us uh, Tuesday nights have <laughs> blown up lately. I've gotten Jackie and Henry to join us along with a group. Hey, I'm telling you, if you watch this group of people, you'll know half of them all went to college together or we did comedy together in New York. Um, it's this fun, tight-knit group. And the best thing... Just for, lying to each other's just face. Screaming just screaming <laughs> at each other. And the best part of it is that we are all like able to scream at each other. I do love playing with with like chat or randos but it's much more polite when you play with this group of knuckleheads everyone's just like <laughs> fucking out of at each game. other's throats oh my god henry was just like i'll kill you all murder all of you <laughs> like he's just like he's not even the killer he got voted out of the ship like multiple times just because he just was like i don't care i'll kill you all and we're like well then we're voting you out i don't it's so funny so anyways twitch.tv forward slash hold nader so jake Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and at Best Jake Young on Instagram. Uh, we've set up bird feeders in my backyard. We got uh, Cardinals, Blue Jays, uh, Blue uh, Black Eyed Junkos, uh, oh, Tufted right. Titmouse, uh, Robins, Starlings. Oh, we got birds. Ooh, we got birds for days a cum over on Twitter. Hen showed up the other day. I couldn't believe he got a picture of a cum hen. They're but called I... slimy doves, and they're real. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. Hey, Mary, can you take us out with uh, Angel of Love by Cham? <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.